God chose the lover when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover. Chose the lover. God chose the lover. Chose the lover. God chose the lover. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the lover. Chose the lover. God chose the lover. Chose the lover. God chose the lover. Boom, five, eight. Good morning, everybody. We are uh, continuing our series. It's titled Jesus Is. This is episode number six. We've talked about how Jesus is wisdom, Jesus is power, Jesus is light, Jesus is life, and Jesus is, uh, what was the first one? Righteousness. Today, we're talking about how Jesus is truth. So let me know in the chat if you guys believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Give me a little praise break hand or give me the praying hands. Let me know that you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. As we're waiting for everyone to come on in here, hopefully we get a few more people. Man, Christian, thank you. Good seeing you, buddy. I love that you're here. Even though you could be sleeping, you could be sleeping. You could have stayed up super late playing games, but you are right here being faithful. Let Christian know you guys love him. I love you, Christian. Good to see you, brother. Um, by the way, Christian, I'm proud of you. You're doing a fantastic job. Like James would say, you're doing a phenomenal job. And I really believe you're just coming, coming along strong, man. Don't get discouraged. God is faithfully working in your life. And I love seeing it. You're growing a lot. <clears throat> Calling you out, Christian. All right, guys. Looks like most people believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You guys understand that every single person on the planet is living by a standard of truth, right? Um, specifically, a standard of moral and spiritual truth, as well as absolute truth about the world around us. But every single person on the planet right now, okay, regardless of who you are, what you believe about God, everyone is being led around uh, by what they believe is the truth. And it shapes their worldview and it determines the way that they live. Okay, so you're, you're allowing something, everyone is allowing something or some set of ideas to determine how they live, to determine what's right or wrong for them, to determine what's, what's good or bad, what's, what's life or death for them. And so there are truths about our temporary world around us, and then there are, there's eternal truth that will actually outlast the very ground we're standing on. Jesus says um, that even though heaven and earth will pass away, his words will not. And so the eternal, unchanging uh, infallible word of God will actually outlast the very ground you and I are standing on, the very oxygen we're breathing. 
uh, heaven and earth will pass away. We're going to see new creation come in and replace um, the current mode of creation. And so it would make sense for us to build our life on the truth of God's word. And so as we navigate this, we're going to talk about how Jesus is truth. We're going to talk about what that means for your life and how we see Jesus kind of prophesied and foreshadowed in the Old Testament specifically as being truth. Okay, so more than just principles, more than just ideas, more than just good, um, uh, I don't know, wisdom to live by, truth is actually a person. And so when I say truth, I'm talking more about the person of Jesus. Like in John chapter 14, Jesus says, look, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He adds the in front of truth, way, and life to let you know he's the exclusive and only. There's not many, there's not multiple, he's the only truth. And we'll explore that when we get to that in the New Testament, but we're going to start in the Old Testament, okay? Um, Ephesians 4.21 will tell us that the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. And so when we talk about this, understand that Yes, we're talking about how the Word of God is going to, in the Old Testament, the Word of God is communicated as truth. And then we're going to see something really cool that Jesus does um, when He comes on the scene in the New Testament. Let me take you to Psalm chapter 25, verse 5. This is what the psalmist says about the truth of God's Word. He says, lead me in your truth. Okay? Teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. And for you, I wait all the day long. My son made fun of me yesterday. He's like, when you drink water, you... And I go, yeah, I'm trying to get as much water in my cheeks as I possibly can. So don't make fun of me. He's already done that. I get roasted every day by my five-year-old. I don't need to hear it from you guys. Lead me in your truth, the psalmist says, and teach me. And so the truth of God's word, at least in the eyes of the psalmist, is what instructs him on how to live. It's what leads him in, his, in the way that he lives. In other words, again, everyone is following some set of ideas or some standard of truth. And for the psalmist, it's actually the word of God. Now, what's interesting is he connects the idea that he's instructed and led by the truth of God's word, and that's connected to God being his salvation. And so notice how salvation and truth are connected for the psalmist. It's really cool. Salvation and truth are connected. Um, and that doesn't change ever. That actually just gets developed even more when Jesus comes. Psalm 43 verse 3. The psalmist again says, send out your light and your truth. Your light and your truth. Everyone always asks me, well, what color coding system I use? I'm not using a color coding system. I just, whatever I think is worth highlighting, I'll try and highlight that same idea with the same color each time. It depends on what I'm talking about, depends on what I'm reading, depends on what I'm personally learning in the scriptures and what God is highlighting to me. So for those of you that have always, that have ever wondered, what is he highlighting? What's his system? I don't have a system. It's just based on each different scenario and what I'm doing. So send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Now, again, just as salvation was connected to truth, we see the light connected to the truth. Just like light guides us around and shows us how to navigate uh, navigate uh, the rooms and outside, light shows us uh, shows us stuff so we can navigate it and not run into stuff. In other words, light uh, shines in the darkness. That's what I'm trying to say. 
light shines in the darkness and um, exposes uh, things that are in our way, things that we need to walk around so that we know how to, how to walk. Uh, in the same way, we already talked about how Jesus is the light. He's the light. Not just a light, not just one of many lights, but he is the exclusive and true light that emanates from the Father. And so that is connected to Jesus, as we'll see in the New Testament being truth. But in the psalmist's mind, Jesus has yet to even come on the scene as the Messiah. The light and the truth go together. Just as we're led around by the light, so the truth of God guides us and actually leads us to his dwelling, to his dwelling place. So whatever the ultimate truth is, it one of the ways to qualify what is truth, okay, is does it lead me to Jesus? Or does it lead me to the God of Israel? Thank you, Angelina. Does it lead me to God? Because truth will always lead you towards him and into his presence, not away from him. Lies and deception and falsehood lead you away from God. But the true and exclusive, absolute truth of God's word will always bring us to him, to his dwelling place. Now, of course, the psalmist means Jerusalem, means Zion, where the temple of God dwells. Or not yet, but, you know, eventually when Solomon builds it. For now, um, let's go to Psalm chapter 51, verse 6. <clears throat> Behold, your, you delight in the truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So again, I'm, I'm just going to go through the Psalms for a little bit to get you, uh, get your appetite wet when it comes to truth. Because the psalmist says, you delight in the truth in the inward being. Um, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So God actually is someone who delights in and loves and values truth. And so if you're going to walk with God, you're going to have that same heartbeat. Not to the degree God does, of course, but you're going to grow up in that. You're going to learn how to delight in the truth and not just see the truth as this uh, boring, bland thing to follow, which is how a lot of Christians view the truth of God's word. They view his truth as like boring, as like, uh, I don't want to follow it. It's just, I only do it so I don't go to hell. When the truth of God's word should be a delight to us. Now, we already kind of, uh, we can look back in hindsight and go, well, the truth, of course, is embodied in Christ. He is the ultimate truth. He is truth if you take the Torah, if you take the Old Testament, if you take all the sum total of God's truth and God's attributes, we see Jesus as being uh, the embodiment of that. And so to delight in the truth is ultimately going to be delighting in God himself and delighting in Jesus as our Savior and our only Messiah. And so this is part of the truth, the idea of truth in the Old Testament. It is something to meditate on. It's something to delight in, something to enjoy and value. Uh, a lot of Christians don't actually see God's word like that. They see it as like a burden. Uh, it's like such a drag to do what God says. I'm only doing it because I don't want to get punished. Whereas as you grow up and mature, you start to see, whoa, I don't just love doing the word of God and love obeying his truth because it keeps me out of trouble. I love it because my father loves it. And I love what my father loves because I've grown in relationship with him. Psalm 86 verse 11. The psalmist again says, teach me your way, O Lord, your way that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So here we have the truth again, which again is going to be what's revealed at that point for the psalmist being the Hebrew Bible, uh, at least the law, um, probably Joshua judges some of those writings, but not the, all the prophets yet. Um, and he actually will say the truth found in the, the revealed word of God 
is the way of God that he teaches us. God actually instructs us, not just in some abstract standard and idea of truth. He instructs us in his very way. Like we can actually learn to think and function and operate the way God does. And we can be a good image bearers of his name. We can actually image him well if we learn his ways revealed in his word. And so to walk in the truth of God's word is to imitate his ways. So now truth is not just a set of guidelines. Truth is not just a bunch of principles and ideas to, to come under. Truth is actually a way to walk in and partner with God and follow him in. So unite my heart to fear your name. Part of uh, the truth of God's word is that it's connected to the fear of his name. So not just when I walk in the truth, I'm fearing his name, but also as I grow in a knowledge of the truth, I begin to fear his name properly even more. I begin to have more of a, a reverence and a respect and a love and an adoration and an overall delight for the name and the character of God. And the psalmist is asking and saying, would you unite my heart to what? To your truth, to your ways, so I can fear your name. So part of fearing the name of God properly is walking in his ways. How do we know we're walking in the way? And, and this becomes like a very personal experience. This becomes a very intimate thing to like engage in. It's like, um, uh, I'm trying to think. When, when I started to get to know my wife, I, I knew a little bit about her, but I did not know her ways. I knew a little bit about her personality. I knew some traits. I knew some likes and dislikes. But like as we fast forward and get into like five years of marriage, six years of marriage, I really know her ways, her tendencies, like the way she operates in certain situations. I can anticipate it because I've studied her long enough, not like a, some, some project, but I've walked with her. I've enjoyed her. I've delighted in her. I've gone on dates with her. And I'll, th there have been some times where I do things she enjoys that I have yet to have a delight for. And as I see her enjoying that, I start to develop a like and a delight in that because I love her and she loves that. And so her likes, her, disli her, her dislikes, uh, what she delights and what she enjoys, I start to like resonate with that. I start to actually develop those kinds of tendencies. That's the idea here, is that the truth of God's word doesn't just lead us in some impersonal experience of doing what he wants. It's actually walk with him in the ways that he himself functions as and operates in. And then as you do, you fear his name more, okay? And I'm putting this all up front because this is just getting developed in the Old Testament, the truth of God's word. And then you're gonna see all these ideas collide in the person of Jesus, walking in his truth, fearing his name, delighting in the truth, being led in the truth, salvation and light being connected to truth. <clears throat> Psalm 119 verse 60, uh, the psalmist says, I hasten. Everyone say, I hasten and I do not delay. That's exactly what you wanna to say to your parents when they tell you to do something. I hasten and I do not delay, mother or father, to keep your commandments. This is not the psalmist feeling pressure to do something he doesn't want to do. This is not the psalmist going, ah, I'm so reluctant to do what God wants me to do. This is the psalmist like Joshua, like Moses, showing the fact that they meditate on the word of God by saying, I hasten to keep your commandments. I, I want to, I love it. Like you don't have to, I, I want to. You don't have to tell me to want to do your commandments. I already want to. So I hasten 
and I don't delay. He's not waiting for a reason to do what God wants. He's not waiting for God to give him a reason to obey. He has enough reason. It's called his heart delights in the truth of God's word. Because again, the ways of God and the truth of God's word are so tightly connected. So, for instance, there's this weird question a lot of atheists will, will, will use to push back against the Christian faith. And they'll say, uh, so is God uh, like held hostage to his own law? Like, can God not disobey his law, his own law? Because he's, he's subjected to that and he's kind of restricted to that. As if to say God is bound by some exterior, uh, outside standard. And I go, no. The law of God is simply the revelation of his character. Like the law of God is revealing to us the nature and the character of who God is. It's not something God's trying to be. It's not something God's trying to stay. He is what we see revealed in the law. It's revealing to us his ways and his character. So no, the law is an expression of our God. The Torah is actually an expression of his, of his character and his love and, and his heart. And so... No, God is not restricted in that sense. The law just shows us who he is, so we have a standard. The standard has always been God is ultimate. Now that gets progressively uh, unpacked in more detail as human history goes on. Right? We see the Adamic covenant with Adam. We see the Noahic covenant with Noah. We, we see God progressively reveal his character and his ways in more specific detail uh, with Moses in the Mount Sinai covenant. And the laws that are progressively given over time you know, with Moses, we see um, the, the ways of God revealed in the Davidic covenant, all the different agreements God makes with humanity and special patriarchs, all the things that we see unfolding throughout the history of the Jewish nation, all the things we see in both Old and New Testament church history gives us a mosaic of who God is and what he's like. This is less about a bunch of guidelines. A lot of people open the Bible for a set of guidelines. And you will find a way of life to conform your life to. Uh, the people read the Bible as just a set of principles, as just a bunch of ideas I have to learn to conform my life to. And of course, that's not false. That's just not completely true. The Word of God reveals to us the heart and the character of God. That's what makes it most valuable. And so when I see His character, when I see His heart, I see how I want to live. Not how I'm forced to live, not, not, not this pressure, like I better live like this or I'm going to hell. I see this enjoyable life to be had. I see what it looks like to live the fullest kind of life and image God to the best, in the best possible way I can. And so the commandments, the righteous rules of God, uh, the truth of God's word, these do instruct us. These do show us how to enjoy life, how to experience the fullest life. But it's more about, this is how you actually stay practically close to God. The, like the word of God, the rules, the, the standards, the, all the different things. God is simply showing us, hey, here's how I, I desire humanity to live. And here's how you can stay close to me. By walking in my ways, revealed in the Torah, revealed in scripture, and ultimately revealed in Jesus. And so the word of God and the truth of God are essentially the same thing. Truth is found in the very word of God. What he speaks is truth, okay? So what God says is ultimate, absolute truth. And it's his word, it's his word. Now, 
There's something else going on in the Old Testament besides the truth of God's word being experienced, okay? <clears throat> Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 through 6. This is interesting. You're going to see an ex uh, a character, okay? You're going to see a character called the Word of the Lord, the Word of God. <clears throat> now, I've done a pretty in-depth study on this. I don't think I need to do it again. But because it's been several months, I'm at least going to uh, summarize some ideas, okay? We're going to do a flyby. Genesis 15 the Lord seems to appear visibly to people. And yet Moses is told, hey, no one can see me and live. So either God's a liar, which we know he's absolutely not, or something else is happening where God is revealing himself in a way that humanity can handle, in a way that doesn't violate the statement he made to Moses, right? And people are still experiencing a visible uh, manifestation of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, okay? Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar, right? And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household is going to be my heir. I don't have a son. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir, okay? So, <clears throat> so far, we have the word of the Lord coming to Abram. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. Now, you might go, well, naturally, it's the word of God. And so the he who's bringing Abram outside is the Lord, whom the word comes from. It doesn't necessarily specify that. It just says he, okay? <clears throat> he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed who? The Lord. The only, um, I guess, personal uh, character that has been noted here clearly is that the word of the Lord comes. And the word of the Lord is distinguished yet the same as the Lord. Because Abram believes him. He said, I believe the Lord. And then the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And the word of the Lord coming to Abram, this might seem like, you're like, ah, you're, you're making a lot out of nothing. Uh, let me prove my point a little more. But this is the first text. The word of the Lord actually brings Abram outside. And you might go, okay, but that's just the Lord. Okay, that's fine. It's fine. What if it happens two, three, four, five more times? First Samuel chapter three. Now again, It'll specify when the Lord God is doing something, when Elohim is moving, right? <clears throat> but here we have the word of the Lord seemingly doing the activity. I don't think that's a stretch. Here we have Samuel encounter God, and we talked a lot about this in the prophecy series. <clears throat> but Samuel here is uh, younger, right? Samuel is um, serving Eli the high priest in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant is. Uh, there's no frequent vision. The word of the Lord was rare, okay? And then the Lord calls to Samuel. Samuel's laying down, 
And he, Sam, Samuel goes, here I am. He runs to Eli and he goes, what's up, Eli? Eli goes, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. The Lord calls again, Samuel. He runs to Eli, the high priest again. Eli goes, I am not calling you, buddy. Go lay down. <laughs> now, Samuel did not, if you have kids, you understand the frustration. Like this is, this gives you PTSD. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Ah, hold on. It, this is what the, the, the statement is. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Okay. It doesn't just say Samuel didn't know the Lord's voice. This is a Samuel did not yet know the Lord in a relationship sense, right? The way a husband knows his wife. He did not yet intimately, familiarly know the Lord in a personal experiential relationship. And then here's the other uh, description of this event. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So I wonder if there's a connection between knowing God relationally, right? And having the word of God revealed to Samuel. Do those ideas go together? I think so. The Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he runs to Eli and Eli goes, oh, oh, the Lord is calling you. Okay, Samuel, go lay down and then say, speak, your, your servant is listening, Lord. So Samuel does that. Fourth time, the Lord came and stood. It doesn't get much clearer than that. The Lord came and stood. And you go, well, that's a metaphorical kind of standing. It's just noting the presence of God. It doesn't mean there's like a, any kind of visual experience or physical presence to be, to be had. Okay, let's keep reading. The Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do something in Israel. And he'll go on to describe what he's about to do to the house of Eli and how he's about to bring that thing toppling down. Now, Samuel lay until morning and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Okay. Samuel was afraid to tell what? The vision. Visions are visual experiences. Now, whether Samuel is seeing that with his physical eyes or in, the, in his mind's eye, the point is, it is a vision. He's seeing something. Now, what is it that he's seeing? I think the text will go on to explain that. Eli called Samuel, <clears throat> said, Samuel. Samuel's like, can't even make eye contact with him, probably. After God just exposed Eli to Samuel. Yes, Eli, Samuel, don't hide it from me. What did he tell you? And then Samuel goes on. And look at how this chapter ends. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. All of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Okay, now watch. And the Lord appeared again. Now, is this just the vision is representative of the God that it's coming from? Like God himself is not visually appearing, but the vision given to Samuel is since it came from God, it's God's presence coming with it. I would say the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Like it's just that simple. The first time is what we just read in chapter three. God appeared, came and stood. Samuel had a vision. The word of the Lord was revealed in a visionary, a visual capacity. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Cause watch, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. 
Now, the, the word is something to be encountered with your ears. Like when you hear something, that's a word, right? That travels through your ears and you're like, I hear the sound, the noise, the word. How do you, how does God reveal himself visually, visually appear, came, come and stand with Samuel? How does he do that in the form of the word? Because that's what he said to reveal himself as and through. That, that, that seems to be like the, 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 the methodology through which God appears to Samuel is the word of the Lord. Which sounds not too far off, but very similar to what Abram experiences, not just in the first text that I showed you, but also I believe in Genesis chapter 18, when three men appear to Abram at the Oaks of Mamre, I think. I'm not mistaken, probably got the name wrong, but either way, three men appear, Abram recognizes the presence and he brings a sacrifice. And <laughs> the text seems to indicate that God has actually come in the form of one of those men. The other two seem to be angels that are going out to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah at the commissioning of God. And so you pair that with Abram, visually experiencing God in Genesis um, 15, you pair that with this, Samuel's visually experiencing God, but it's the word of the Lord. In other words, the word of God is not just something to be experienced uh, uh, through your ears, but with your eyes. And again, it doesn't specify if this is a vision with his physical eyes or in his mind's eye, but it seems to make sense that it's actually something he's experiencing physically because the Lord comes and stands, the Lord appears, the Lord reveals himself, and the word of God is that means. In other words, Samuel is encountering the word of the Lord. Do you catch that? And it's not different from the Lord, or whoever the, whoever the word of the Lord is, is distinct from the Lord, yet the same as the Lord. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 1. God calls Jeremiah the young prophet, and he goes, ah, Lord, sounds like Moses, I don't know how to speak. He thinks he's getting out, <laughs> thinks he's getting out of this one. I don't know how to speak, I guess you could call someone else, I don't know. I'm only a youth, guess you chose the wrong guy. And the Lord says, don't say I'm only a youth. And Jeremiah's like, God dang it. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you'll speak. Now hold on. This, remember, the, we're about to talk about the word of the Lord. It's imperative that Jeremiah encounters the word of the Lord to be an ambassador and a prophet with the word of the Lord on his lips. Jeremiah is going to be sent as a prophet to speak and declare the word of the Lord, right? That means he has to encounter the word of the Lord in some capacity. God has to give it to him. God has to... Something has to happen. Don't be afraid of them. I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now watch. Um, if you go back to verse 4, it says the word of the Lord. I should have started with verse 4. I apologize. It says the word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah saying the word of God came to me. And the word of the Lord says, I formed you in the womb. I consecrated you. I appointed you. And Jeremiah goes, ah, I'm unqualified. Guess you got to go find someone else. God goes, nope, not getting out of this one, buddy. And the Lord put out his hand 
and touched my mouth, Jeremiah said. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, Jeremiah is about to have two visions. Right here, he's going to see an almond branch. Right after that, he's going to see a boiling pot facing away from the north. What's interesting to me is the text does not say God came to him. That doesn't mean he didn't. But specifically, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord comes to him saying, and guess what happens? That same word of the Lord that comes and speaks to Jeremiah ends up reaching out his hand and touches Jeremiah's mouth. Does that sound like some object to be encountered or does that sound like some person to be experienced? If the word of the Lord has a hand to put out and touch Jeremiah's mouth, and I know what some will say, this is not the word of the Lord touching Jeremiah's mouth. This is God actually touching his mouth. Okay, maybe we don't have to choose. Maybe you're actually creating some false delineation and it's actually the same thing. God is putting out his hand. I'm not saying that. God did pull Abram out of the tent to go look around. God did encounter Samuel, but specifically the word of the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 9. And then we'll jump to the New Testament, all right? This is the, when, when the Lord speaks to Elijah, okay? There he came to a cave, lodged in it. Elijah ran away. He's kind of given up. He's depressed. Anyone feel that? Feel like giving up? Feeling like being just depressed and sitting in that all day? And playing the victim and just looking at all that's wrong? Well, look at how God answers Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with a sword, and even I'm the only one left. They seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out, okay? Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. <clears throat> so the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, go stand before the Lord on the mount. And behold, the Lord passed by. The Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains, broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After that, the wind, after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in that. After the earthquake, there was a great fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Now remember who came, or what it is that Elijah's interacting with, is the word of the Lord comes to Elijah saying, and then we have a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord. I just said that, <laughs> the God of hosts, you know that. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, I'm the only one left and, left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return your way to the wilderness when you arrive. And then he's going to give Elijah instructions on um, uh, Jehu getting anointed, Elisha being the next prophet. Okay, 
But the point is, there's a voice that comes. There's a sound of a low whisper. God actually is standing out there, passing by on the mountain. It's the word of the Lord that comes to Elijah. Seemingly, that what Elijah is experiencing <clears throat> is God. <clears throat> but he's encountering and experiencing um, specifically the word of the Lord. Now, for those that are saying, you're reading a lot into the text. I, I don't know. I think John and Paul and the New Testament authors, when they use this same language, they're seeing exactly what I am. John chapter 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word, the eternal Word emanating from the Father, watch this, the Word was with God. Okay? But also the Word was God. So the Word, its own entity, its own existence, right, seems to be its own person, being alongside God, yet God at the same time. This is what we see in the Old Testament. This is what we see. We see the Word of God encountering people. We see God visually, like visibly experiencing, uh, uh, encountering people, and it's in the form of the Word of the Lord. And a lot of times, like Jacob wrestles God, or uh, Gideon and uh, Samson's parents encounter God, and they see him and they go, oh my gosh, we're gonna die because we've, we've seen the Lord. But they're not seeing God in that, in that kind of capacity that's legal, you might say, okay? They're seeing God in the way that he wants them to see him, in a way that it's okay. Or his glory doesn't obliterate them because of their sinful condition. And that's why he appears as a, as a person. That's why this, this idea of Jesus coming in the flesh, the word of God taking on human form, is not a brand new idea to the New Testament. It's been there all along. It's been there all along. And so in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. You go down to verse 14, John will say, the word became flesh. So this is not the word coming into existence, <clears throat> because we know the word was always alongside God, yet God at the same time. And so the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. So the word is a person. Glory as of the only son from the, from the father, full of grace and truth. And then John bore, bore witness about him. The point here is, look, there is one who is the word of the Lord. John is going back to the Old Testament and piecing this all together for his audience in his gospel. Okay? And so not only is Jesus the perfect embodiment of all of God's word, of the Torah, of the Hebrew Bible, not only is he the perfect representation of the Father's nature and the exact image of his glory, right? Jesus is the word of God emanating from the Father as a person alongside God, yet God at the same time. And he comes into our world, puts on flesh, and he does what none of us can as the perfect word, okay? As the word that none of us could ever measure up to, as the word none of us ever could fulfill on our own. He comes as that. And if you think this is wild, go to Revelation chapter 19 and John will continue with this idea. Same, same author, different letter. He says, I saw heaven open, behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. So whoever this is, what's he called? Whoever John is seeing coming on a white horse, judging in righteousness, what's he called? He's called faithful and he's called true. Are those not two descriptions of God's word? Are those not two very accurate characteristics 
of the scriptures, of the word of God? I think they are. In other words, watch what he's about to see. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The word of God. Now in the Old Testament, the word of God is truth. The word of God is faithful, right? Here John sees the one who is the word of God, embodied, personified, arms and legs. If you took the, the, the perfect nature of God and put arms and legs on him, if he became a person, that's who he's seeing. He's faithful and he's true. He's the perfect representation of God's word. He is the word of God. That's what makes Jesus faithful and true. That's why he can say, my word will not pass away, even if heaven and earth do. And what's interesting is, after we see Jesus show up, uh, the angel of the Lord doesn't show up anymore. We see angels, we see messengers, but not that exclusive angel of God we see in the Old Testament, who is God, yet alongside God. And we can talk about that another day. But the point is, okay, Let's continue into the New Testament talking about how, yes, Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. He's the word of God. Ephesians 4.21, uh, <clears throat> the apostle Paul says, look it, that's not the way you learn Christ. Like the unbelieving Gentile pagan way, living in darkness, that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming you've heard about him, assuming you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. <laughs> you can't say that about anyone else. You can't. That's an exclusive claim. The exclusive absolute truth is wrapped up in the person of Christ himself. Or it's not. You don't have someone who is the perfect embodiment of absolute truth and then someone else, you have one person. That's why Jesus in John 14 says, I am the way. The truth, that's exclusive. Truth by definition and by nature is exclusive. Meaning, if Jesus is the truth, then no one else and nothing else can be the truth. I don't care what religion you represent, I don't care what deity you claim to, to, to worship, I don't care what you know patriarchal head you claim to follow in religion. Jesus is the only one who claimed to be the way and the truth and the life, but also backed it up. No one else has resurrected from the grave, conquered death, shown up to over 500 eyewitnesses. No one else has changed the course of human history, literally divided time. The years were counting down to his arrival. Now they're counting up from his birth. Right? No one else has been prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled every single prophecy given thousands of years before he came into the world. No one else has a hand. I mean, think about it. Every other religion wants a kind of Jesus. They want Jesus a part of their religion. Why is it that everyone's trying to grab for him? Because whether they admit it or not, he is the way, the truth, and the life. But everyone wants to shove and conform Jesus as the truth into their religion and their ideology and make him just another truth or a truth that fits their worldview and paradigm. Jesus said, nah, I am playing that game. I am the way and the life. So whatever it means for Jesus to be the truth, this is what we saw in the Old Testament. The way to the Father, 
the way to live a life that is honorable to God and the life we need, that's wrapped up in the truth about Christ. Truth is not flexible. Like the nature of Jesus being truth is that he's absolutely, eternally, unchangeably truthful. So what is true about him and what is true about what he's done, that doesn't change. That doesn't improve. That doesn't decrease. What he's done is done. And who he is is who he's always been and who he will always be. So for him to be the truth, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? If you knew me, you'd know the Father also. So guess what? You don't know the Father except through the Son. You don't get to the Father, in other words, into the kingdom of heaven, back to the tree of life, you might say. You don't get there, back into the garden presence of God, without going into the way of Christ, through the way of Jesus. You don't. There's no other way. So part of what it means for Jesus to be the truth is that he is the only exclusive way back to the Father, heaven, the garden presence, the tree of life. No one gets there because guess what? There's a flaming sword and uh, I forget what it was in Genesis, but there's at least a flaming sword guarding the way back into the garden. Ain't nobody getting in there. But Jesus says, actually, I can become the way. I can become the way. Since there is no other way, I won't just make a way, I'll become it. That's why he says, I'm the door, right? That's why he says, I'm the door. Because just so like you can enter into rooms through doors, without Christ, the kingdom of God is closed off. There's no other door to get in. There's no other way, you can't climb up. That's why Jacob's vision is so telling. If you go back to the patriarch Jacob when he's sleeping and he has a dream and he sees a staircase going up to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it. And then in John's gospel, Jesus says, you'll see angels descending and ascending on the son of man. He's saying, I am the staircase of Jacob's dream. I am the way back to the father, back to relationship with God. No one else is. Buddha's not. Muhammad's not. Joseph Smith's not. No other religion is. Jesus is the only exclusive way because no one has laid down their life. No one's lived perfectly. No one's resurrected from the dead. No one's done what Jesus has. So not only is he the true and only way back to the Father, not only is he the true and only way to have abundant life, but Jesus is the standard and the way to live a full abundant life this side of heaven too. Meaning, if you read back in the Old Testament, that's why I started with the Psalms. The Psalmist will say, lead me in your truth. Teach me your ways. Uh, um, I want to walk in your truth. Well, Jesus is that. Like everything the Psalmist is saying about the word of God, say, I want to walk in it. I want to enjoy it. I want to delight in it. Lead me in it. Direct me by your truth. Let your word be the standard of my life. Well, now Jesus comes in and he is that. Not to the neglect of the scriptures, but actually to the fulfillment of it. Because Jesus will lead us in a way that is perfectly consistent with the word of God. If you claim Jesus is leading you and it violates scripture and it dishonors God and it violates the character of God, he's not leading you. Not he ain't. I promise you that. So the, Jesus is the word of God. Absolutely. Now watch this. John chapter 1 verse 17. Going back. There's a lot of John's gospel in this. 
It says the law was given through Moses. And everyone likes to contrast here the law and grace. John isn't saying that the law was absent of grace. He's saying Jesus is actually a better, clearer revelation and fuller substance of grace than the law itself was. <clears throat> the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's already talked about how uh, from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. And so the fullness that's being received, um, whether in the old or new, okay, the gift of grace was the law for the Israelites. The gift of grace for us is a better gift, being Jesus himself. The fulfillment, the embodiment of the law, which is better. <laughs> like if you're going to say, here's a law, here's someone who fulfills the law. I'd say, well, give me the one who fulfills the law so I can go and walk in the, in the Torah without feeling that looming you know, penalty and punishment over my head. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now again, the only God who is at the Father's side, being the Word of God, guess what? Grace and truth come through Him. So, grace and truth are paired. We should never have truth without grace, right? But we should never have grace without truth. And that balance is a tightrope walk, my friend. It really is. There are some of you that like lean more toward the grace side at the expense of truth, and you're willing to compromise truth in the name of like, I just wanna be gracious. And then there are other people who are like, ah, you hammer the truth home in such a demeaning, rude, aggressive, uh, condemning, judgmental kind of way that there's no love or grace attached to it at all. Well, Jesus is the perfect balance of not just the truth of God's word come to expose humanity's inability and wickedness, but the grace that we need to be saved from it. The grace we need to be saved from our wickedness and sin. So yes, yes Jesus is the standard and the perfect truth that exposes our failure. Like he literally shows us, you can't make it, okay? Because not only the word of God, you know, showing us we can't make it, Jesus doubles down. And he goes, none of you can make it. But the grace of Jesus says, but if you trust in me and have faith, I can get you in. I can get you in. So if you and I want to walk in the truth of Jesus, it's never going to be absent of grace. You really have to balance that, man. You can have, there's some of you, let me pause, because I've been where you are. Some of you can't let anyone say anything wrong, like my son. My wife and I were just talking about this the other day. We're like, man, Salem, five years old now, like he has to call out everything wrong I say or do. He can't let anything go. As you grow up and mature, you're able to let certain things go because they're not a big deal, even if it's a mistake. Like if my wife says, well, it's on so-and-so street, and I don't have to like step in and show why I'm better than you and go, actually, it's high street. My son, however, has to correct every micro issue, every micro mistake we make. And boy, is it frustrating. And that's some of you guys. Like you, you cannot let anything go when it comes to letting other people speak and share their heart. The, the smallest inclination of a mistake in their theology, you jump on that. 
And of course, we should long to help people see God clearly. We should long to help people see the truth and walk in that. But do you have to jump on every single thing they say that's wrong and not let them even finish their statement? Like, do you have to correct everything people say in a statement? And this is how discernment ministries that aren't really discernment ministries get started. It's this hyper-focusing and over-emphasizing on just the wrong that's said and never ever applauding or confirming the good that's said. So, some of you need to understand that part of sharing the truth in a timely way that is helpful and beneficial means that you're going to do it out of love. Not to feel superior, not to prove why you're right, not to step on them, not to get back at them for pantsing you in ninth grade, but to actually say, I care deeply for you. And I want you to know the truth and I want this, I want to benefit your life. So I'm going to share the truth and because truth is going to be confrontational. Love is going to be confrontational. You don't always though have to correct everything everyone says about everything. Some things you let go. Some things aren't timely to actually address yet. Some things, it's just not the right situation because they're not in the right mental state to receive what you're saying. So guess what? Truth is always going to be accompanied with grace. But don't think that means you get to live a soft, comfortable, convenient life. The truth is going to offend. You better open your mouth when God tells you to. You better step in when he says to. And you better be willing to confront and experience tension if he says for you to do that. John chapter 17, Jesus talks about the word of God, doesn't he? In his high priestly prayer, he says, sanctify them in the truth. He says, your word is truth. So if Jesus is the word and he's the truth, boom, there you go. Here's what you need to understand about, yes, the word of God sanctifies us. Yes, the word of God is sufficient to develop and train and sanctify us into the image of Jesus. But do you know who's overseeing that process? Do you know whose image you're being conformed to by that word? Do you know who's sovereignly allowing that word to produce fruit in your life? It's Jesus. So this is why I said, when we talk about truth, when we talk about, um, um, I don't know, the word of God, um, I lost my train of thought because y'all's comments are distracting me. Let me backtrack. Hopefully that thought comes back. When Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth, he's saying your word is what sanctifies, trains, develops, purifies, refines people into the image of Christ. Now, Jesus, again, overseeing that, and this is why I said in the beginning, (laughs) the word of God, the truth of God's word is not just a set of principles and guidelines and wisdom to be followed. Firstly, firstly, Ken, your boogaboos are getting me. You better stop it. Firstly, the truth and the word of God is a person to be experienced. It's a person to be encountered. Then, it's a path to be walked. It's a way to walk in. Then it's a lifestyle to be experienced. Then it's like, it shows you how to live. So, this is what the truth of God's word is supposed to do for us. It's supposed to lead us into the way that is 
honorable to God and as close to Jesus as possible. But again, it's relationship over principles. It's the presence of God above principles. This is not minimizing the principles and wisdom in God's word. This is just me saying, look, the word of God is not ultimately just that. How God sanctifies us and purifies us is in relationship with the truth. Not just opening the Bible, not just hearing a sermon, not just listening to podcasts about the scriptures while you're doing dishes, but also walking with and obeying and loving the word of God being Jesus. <laughs> yes, John, put him on a timeout. <laughs> so he goes, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. Watch. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. So as we move into more of the practical dimensions of, of truth sanctifying us, understand this. The way truth sanctifies us now is only possible because Christ sanctified himself. The Messiah sanctified himself and set himself apart and laid himself down so we can be sanctified in that truth about his work. Then it's applied to us and now we can walk by the Spirit in the truth. Because the Spirit of God will lead us into all truth. Okay? And the truth is always going to be what uh, brings us closest to Christ. Full of grace, full of love. Colossians 1.5. <clears throat> it says, uh, Paul says he's heard of the hope and the love they have because of the hope laid up for them in heaven, the Colossian church. And he says, of this, you've heard before in the word of truth. Of what? Of this hope. So he's going, you've heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, which is the gospel. These three ideas go together. And that gospel, that truth will bear fruit. So watch this. We'll, we'll get to the part where we talk about how Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our truth. Jesus is our peace. Well, not truth. We're talking about truth today. We'll talk about that later. Because he is the truth and the word of truth, the one who reveals truth to us, um, the one who leads us into the truth, the one who sets the standard of truth for our way of life, <clears throat> because he is that, we have hope in him. And the gospel is that message of the truth and it will bear fruit. So here's like a couple uh, kind of characteristics of the truth. The truth gives us hope. Hope about the future, of course, because hope is always future-oriented. But also, the truth of the gospel will bear fruit in our life. Truth begets more truth. Romans 6 talks about how sin begets more sin, and obedience begets more obedience. Like when you obey God, it's easier to obey Him the next time. It's not like a definitive, absolute thing, there's no way you'll fail. It just gets easier. When you sin, it becomes easier to sin next time. It's almost like your defense is down a little bit. Your strength is down a little bit. You're, you're more vulnerable. Sin begets sin. Obedience begets obedience. The truth of God will always beget more truth. It bears fruit in our life. So that's what Christ wants to do in our lives is bear good fruit and help us to live according to the hope we have in his name. And so truth always directs your hopes. That's always helpful to think about. Like, just, just think about this for a minute. Is the truth of God's word directing your hopes? Think about what you're hoping for. 
Think about what you're believing for. Think about what you're dreaming for and praying for. You got to ask yourself, what's informing those hopes? What's influencing the hopes that I have? Who told me to hope for that? Who gave me reason to believe for that? Right? Who, who gave me a, a reason to pray for that? Why am I hoping and believing and praying for these things? What, what, why are my hopes being, being what they are? And if it's not the word of God influencing your hopes, if it's not the word of God driving your hopes in the direction of heaven and the direction of God, you really should pull back a little and sit with the Lord long enough to figure out if those hopes really are truthful and aligned with his word. Because frankly, I don't want to hope in anything that's just going to end up not happening. I don't want to hope in anything that's false. I don't want to spend my limited resource of hope on something that isn't going to happen. And I thought it was truthfully going to happen and it ended up not. I'd rather spend my, my hope and, and, and point all of that hope in the direction of what God has said in his word, which is new creation, heaven on earth, eternity in his, in his presence, reigning with Christ, being a new creation, being free from this bondage. That's what I'm hoping for. And so as you grow in the truth of Jesus, watch, he does inform your hopes. You begin to have more accurate biblical hopes and your dreams and your vision and your prayers start to align more and more with the word of God. So Jesus, not only like the actual scriptures, but Jesus himself in character and nature sets the standard for what is truth. What is truth? Here's another characteristic of Jesus being the truth. And remember, truth being Christ, bearing fruit in our life, that, gives, that means all the glory goes to Him, all the credit goes to Him for any good in my life. When I experience sanctification, when I transform, when I'm more patient towards my wife, when I start a homeless ministry, when I serve in my church and people are being impacted, when I preach the gospel, like that's God bearing fruit in my life by his truth. By his truth. That's what truth will do. Truth will bear fruit and it will impact more people. John 8, 31, the truth will also set you free. And this is not talking about some progressive freedom. I know some people want to turn it into that. This is talking about the once for all freedom from sin and the penalty of sin itself being death. Jesus is our freedom in that sense. He frees us. He says to the Jews who believed, look, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Then he'll go on to talk about how like, anyone who continues in sin is a slave to sin. So primarily he's talking about being freed from the penalty of sin, coming out from under slavery to sin into freedom. And it's Jesus who does that. How? By his truth. By his truth. Now there are some who would say, well, this is free from never sinning again. Really? <laughs> I, we went through John, 1 John chapter 3 and we talked about this. I encourage you guys to go watch that. For those that would say, this is freedom from never sinning again. I'll tell you, the power is there. The ability is there. But the reality is, God knows our weak human condition. He really does. So Jesus says, look, if you abide in my word, you'll know the truth. So watch. To know the truth, 
to abide or remain connected to the word he's spoken, to believe in that, is to become his disciple, okay? To be born again. And the same truth that Jesus accomplished and fulfilled and embodied is the same truth that breaks you free, breaks you free from your bondage to sin and death and the devil and the standard you couldn't meet. He sets you free. How? By your acceptance and belief in the truth about him. That's how powerful truth is. Like truth has the ability, the God-given ability to set you free. Now, there is also the other truth, not other truth, but the other dimension to this idea that Jesus isn't necessarily touching on, but other scriptures do, which is that the truth of Jesus progressively sets you free mentally and emotionally and spiritually from, from whatever it is that throughout your life you need to be set free from, whether that be certain addictions, certain habits, certain worldviews, certain lies you believed, certain insecurities, certain things about how you believe the world functions, you, you become, become progressively freed from that over time. And I, we need mental freedom, we really do. There are strongholds that a lot of us are held captive to. And that's why your mind needs to be renewed by the truth. The truth is what renews your mind. And Jesus being that truth, this is why relationship is so important. I'm, I don't, here's my Bible. There, is, there was a season in my Christian life a really long season where anywhere, anytime I had heard the word truth, like you'll be set free from the truth by the truth or, or you'll be led by the truth or you need to know the truth. I just thought just scripture. Like I just thought only Bible and I kind of minimized relationship in the process and I elevated scripture, which is great. This is the standard of truth. This tells you what's right or wrong, good, what's good or evil, what's life or death. The word of God reveals to us who the true and living God is and how we should see the world around us. The word of God sanctifies and purifies and renews us. Absolutely. But that hunger for truth came at the expense of enjoying my relationship with God. And I'd venture to say some of you were there. Some of you, some of you are there. We're like, your life is all about this pursuit of some philosophical idea of truth like, I just want the principles, I want the guidelines, I want the actual objectives and commands. And it's to the neglect of actually knowing familiarly and intimately the God who made you. So, now when I read truth, I try my best to make sure I think, yes, scripture, but not disconnected from relationship. Actually, it's scripture in the context of relationship. Actually, it's reading the Bible in the context of relationship and not on my own trying to just gather wisdom and knowledge to do my own thing. So again, it's not just principles, ideas, objectives, commands. It's all of that in the context of relationship and knowing Christ. So when Jesus says, yeah, the truth will set you free, that's because you come into relationship with the one who is the truth through believing in the gospel. When it says the word of God, the truth bears fruit in your life, that's because you're abiding in the one who bears fruit in your life. When it says the word of God sanctifies us, that's because you're in relationship with the one who's pruning and sanctifying and renewing you by the word you're meditating on, right? Same with the grace and truth coming through Christ. Or James chapter one, verse 18, it talks about the truth, how we were brought forth by the truth. This is talking about new creation. This is talking about being born again. 
okay? This is rebirth, brand new nature, brand new creation, brand new heart, brand new mind, brand new identity. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so the will of God, he decided, hey, I'm going to bring you forth by the word of truth. In other words, the, I'm trying to think of the best analogy possible without getting too graphic. Um, the truth of God, its role in our salvation process is not just, hey, that's a message to believe. That's a message to admit is true. That's a message I need to agree with. Beyond that, the truth is not just that. The truth is also going to work when you believe it comes into your heart and your soul as a seed. And what it produces is a brand new creation. So that you are birthed again through that truth that brings you up forth out of the grave. Because that truth has the power to do it. And that same truth not just has the power to save, not just has the power to free, not just has the power to reconnect us back to God as Jesus is the truth, but has the power to sanctify and transform and refine us and help us avoid sin. In other words, relationship seems to be the key in, in all of this. Whether it's, I want to walk in your ways, I want to obey your commands, I want to know the truth, I want to avoid sin, I want to become more like Jesus. Relationship is the, is the absolute central focus of all these ideas. So 1 John 2, 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in that person. But whoever keeps his word, well, in him truly the love of God is perfected. In other words, people who claim to have a relationship with God, but have nothing to do with his word, are either immature, that's like the best case scenario, or they don't know God at all. Because if the truth was in them, right, they would begin to keep his word in obedience, in sanctification. Instead of rebelling and living in unrepentant sin, the word of God in them would go to work and bear fruit. So the fact that there's no truth going to work in their life might be evidence they have not yet even be, been connected to the one who is truth. Otherwise, that would have borne fruit by now. Now, of course, hey, truth is going to bear fruit in our life. But also, the idea of keeping his word is to believe what, what scripture tells us about Jesus. That he is the Messiah. That he's the anointed one. That he took on flesh. That he really is God in the flesh. The eternal word. All these different ideas First John touches on. Because whoever denies that Jesus came in the flesh is not of the truth. Whoever denies that Jesus um, came from the Father as the eternal word is not of God. Now truth being Christ and the scriptures that of course he perfectly embodies, the truth gives us a clear, a clear definition of what love is. So remember how I said grace and truth can't be disconnected? The same is true for uh, love and truth. Little children, verse 18 says right here, let us not love in word or talk. Let's actually love in deed and in truth. In other words, let's not just talk about how much we love people and send good vibes and 
you know, all that garbage. Oh, Facebook, oh, I got in a car accident. Sending good vibes. Well, your good vibes do nothing for me, okay? Nothing at all. Let's love in deed and in truth. The truth of God is always going to guide our way of love. In other words, not only is the word of God the standard for living, the standard of good, the standard of morality, not only is the word of God give us these clear categories so I can recognize light from dark, good from evil, all that stuff, but the word of God actually shows us what it means to actually love. Like there are guidelines. There are guidelines. That's what the Torah outlines. The Torah outlines the way of love. The problem is none of us can perfectly love, so Jesus comes and does it for us. So now, if you want to love people well, it will always be consistent with the truth of God's word. So you have a measuring stick. You do. You can actually, in any given moment, you can know whether you're loving someone based, and you can filter that through the word. You go, hmm, is this consistent with the word of God? Is what I'm about to do consistent with who God is and what he wants? <clears throat> if it's not, it's not going to be love. And you go, well, hold on. I can do something nice for someone, even though maybe, like I can, uh, let's just say I, I, can, I can affirm someone in their, in their decided gender identity. I'm getting weird, huh? We're going there. Well, they're just people in my life. I need to, I want to love them well and, and I really want to help them. So I'm going to accept them for who they are and approve of what they've decided to live like. Or let's just say I, my cousin's a drug dealer. My cousin's a drug dealer. And I'm like, well, I want to love him. So I have to accept him the way he is, which means I have to approve of his drug dealing and his drug addiction. Mm -mm. Who the heck told you that? Who, who lied to you? <laughs> who lied to you? Culture? TikTok? President, your mama, who, who lied to you? Love is always going to do what is best for another. Sometimes that's confronting. Sometimes that is not approving. Sometimes that is actually disagreeing with someone. Sometimes that's actually calling someone out and exposing what they're doing. So if you claim to love someone while enabling them to live in sin, your love is actually hurting and killing them. Is that love? Well, no, they'll figure it out. I just got to affirm the law. No, no, it's not. That's not love. <laughs> love is going to be what is best for another. Sometimes I have to not give my son what he wants because I love him. I can't let him just ride his bike in the street because he ain't ready. He'll get hit by a car. He really wants to. And he goes, you don't love me. If you did, you'd let me. No, because I love you, I'm not letting you. So the truth of God's word and true love are always going to be consistent with one another. Always. You know, interestingly enough, since Jesus is the truth, but, but remember, there's grace. It's not just tough love, right? It's grace. Gracious love that often is packaged in tension and conflict and disagreement. Because I want what's better for you, and I want you to come out of your sin so me telling you you're a dead sinner without Christ might come off offensive and it might be uncomfortable to me. But if I care more about your eternity than your view of me, I'll choose to love you and call that out. Ephesians 6.14 actually tells us we can put on truth. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. So guess what? You and I can put on 
the truth of God's word daily and submit to that and let it guide our life and help like allow the truth to determine our decisions. And, and you and I, every morning, whether you know it or not, whether it's subconscious or conscious, we are making a decision to live by the word of God or not. And sometimes it'll be like three, four in the afternoon before I go, oh, I actually haven't made a conscious decision to let the word of God guide me. That's not just going to happen accidentally. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not going to happen accidentally. So just to be clear, we put on the truth. And sometimes when we do, that truth is going to actually attract persecution. That truth is going to confront people and offend people just by our very nature, just by loving God, <laughs> just by loving God. <clears throat> so, but love will never enable someone to keep sinning. Does that make sense? Otherwise, you can't really say biblically you're loving them because love doesn't enable what hurts and kills another. Scripture would disagree with that idea. That, oh, well, I can, uh, I can affirm people in their sin. I, I can approve. No, approving is different than accepting. Right? I, I can actually say, hey, I accept you. And, I, and I, like, you can be in my life. I do not approve of what you are doing and what you're deciding. But because I've accepted you into my life, I'm going to address those things that are killing and hurting you. In grace. and love. Not just to be better. Not to feel superior. Not because you're insecure, because you genuinely love them. Now, when it comes to the truth, Jesus being the truth, for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but instead obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, it's interesting that this is the verse that comes after this whole spiel on, hey, love will not enable people to live in the darkness. For those who do not obey the truth, being Jesus and the gospel message about Christ, Instead, they obey unrighteousness and sin. Well, their end destination is wrath and fury. That's unavoidable. Like, you can't get around that text. And, well, you know, what's wrath? What's fury? It's not nice. It's not fun. You don't schedule a vacation to go to the wrath and fury of God theme park. You want to avoid that. And so these people who are not obeying the truth are heading towards wrath and fury. So the truth of God, specifically being Christ himself, presents a dividing line. Like really, that's why Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I came not to, not to, <laughs> I won't get into it. I came to separate a, a mother from a father and a, a husband from a child and, a, and all these different things. Because the, the truth of God's word actually presents a clear dividing line. Like you're either for me or you're against me. You either gather or you scatter. You're either of the light, you're of the darkness. So those who don't obey the truth in, in believing the gospel, there is an eternal uh, separation from God they will experience, and we should care enough about people to not want that for them and to step in the way. Like if I see you driving off a cliff, I'm not going to wave you down and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run after you and chase you and yell and try and get your attention and try and get you to swerve off. That's what it means to love. And sometimes you might come off as offensive. Why are you yelling at me? Because you're heading toward a cliff. And I don't care about what you think about me. I care about your well-being. Mm. Do you though? 
you gotta ask yourself. Love is not self-preserving. You get that, right? Love is not self-seeking, where it's like, I am just about preserving me, and your opinion about me matters, and your my self-image matters. Love is, I care deeply about you. And if that means you think less of me in order for you to live a better life, I'm willing to risk that. I'm willing to risk that. So truth presents a dividing line, doesn't it? Light, dark, life, death. Um, God spends most of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 separating, doesn't he? What do you think truth does? Truth separates. Not you from other people and like, I'm against you, but now you're on the king's side and you're trying to get them on our side too. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, it says, um, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So remember how I said salvation and truth are connected in Psalms? You got truth and salvation, boop, go together. When God presents the truth in the form of his son, in the form of the gospel, he's presenting an opportunity to be saved. He's not presenting you an opportunity to feel bad about yourself and mope around and stay in your prison cell. He's, he's offering you a way out. And he's saying, here's the truth that you need to come out of that prison cell, to be saved from eternal wrath. Here it is. Here it is. Do you want it? It's in my son. And so salvation is wrapped up in the truth. And God makes it so easy, man. He really does. He makes it so easy. Very easy, actually. Like, just believe. Now, belief has to be qualified and defined appropriately. Otherwise, you get all kinds of messes that we got to clean up. <laughs> 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Paul telling Timothy, look, a good, faithful servant of God will handle his word correctly. Can you think of people who are mishandling the truth? Using it to oppress, using it to condemn, using it to bolster their own reputation, using it to build an empire, using it to stand above people and feel superior. Can you think of any? Do we all have someone in mind that we're like, yes, I can think of the, the person who's doing that. That's the kind of person we don't want to be. Like, to stand on the truth is to wield that sword properly and to handle that truth properly, to rightly divide, to rightly divide, um, to rightly handle the word of truth. Ephesians 4, and this all relates back to Christ. Like, the relationship that I have with the truth, being Christ, there's a way to actually rightly handle that beautiful gift that also includes the word of God. Ephesians 4 says, speak the truth in love. By doing so, we're to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, he'll go on to say, makes itself work properly, so it builds itself up in love. So, what does truth do in the context of the church? Well, the truth actually builds up. The truth is designed to strengthen and edify and fortify the church. The truth is supposed to build and actually make us stronger. Um, and by the way that's going to happen is by using the truth properly. 
and by speaking the truth lovingly. Okay? So when you share the truth in love and graciously, especially towards other believers, you are building up the body. That's, that's what Christ has given us as a gift. Christ has given us the gift of his truth. And he says, here, this is to build you up. And again, that truth is in the context of relationship. So it's not just here's a set of principles. Uh, here's a one and done kind of Christianity 101 book. Go and read it. It's a here, know me in my word and have a relationship with me so you can better build the church together. That's what God is inviting us into. So again, I'm trying to get you guys, I know like apologetics has, has trained some of us to think the truth is the way to break and shatter arguments. And that's not wrong. It's just not completely true. Or the truth is just a set of principles to show me how to live properly. And that's not wrong. It's just not completely true. More than that, truth is a person to be experienced and then we'll see those things happen. Then I'll use the truth properly to shatter arguments and false doctrine. Then I'll use the truth properly to be build up the church and grow into the image of Christ. Then I'll use the truth properly to actually live the way of life God's called me to. So the truth does all this kind of stuff and Jesus is the one overseeing the whole process. John chapter 4, we have two more verses and we're done. Look at that. Kind of on time. John 4, 23. Jesus says to the woman at the well, which was a scandalous situation, man. A woman from Samaria. Jesus, come on. The hour is coming and is now here. Watch. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Does God accept any kind of worship that I decide is acceptable? Does God accept any kind of worship we throw at Him? Or does God accept a kind of worship? He's seeking for such people to worship Him, what? In spirit and in truth. So, Jesus being the truth also informs our way of worship. The Word of God actually should inform our way of worship. We should learn how to let the word of God be the filter for when we sing to God. We should let the word of God form our language of worship. Not so that it's plastic and, and stale and rehearsed and memorized and we're just regurgitating what the scripture says. But there's some, something's happened over my life where early on in my years of following Jesus, when I would sing truth, it was impersonal to me. It was true. It just, I had yet to experience that for myself. Or I had yet to read about that in the word of God, okay? But as I grow in the scriptures, as my knowledge of God grows, as I sing, God, you are worthy. Like my, the spirit of God, I think, brings to mind all the different scriptures that I can connect. And that reinforms what I'm saying. That like reinforces what I'm saying to God. And I know it's found in scripture. And I know I've experienced it. And I know I've seen like in my life, the glory of God. And we're called to worship in spirit and truth. So the truth of God should always guide our worship. So the spirit of God in us is uh, leading us to worship. And he'll always lead us into the truth. That's exactly what John 15, 26 says. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth. That's why I think Paul will say the spirit of Christ. 
There's a lot of stuff going on there. Who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness about me. So, the spirit of truth, being the spirit of God inside of us, he leads us into the truth and he testifies of Jesus. So that everything I'm reading or learning or growing in, I'm, I'm relating it to Jesus in my life. The spirit of God is testifying of Christ with what I read, what I experience, what God you know, brings me through. Uh, and the last scripture is John 16, 13. This is what it means that Jesus is the truth. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He won't speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he'll speak. He'll declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's what the spirit of God does. He leads us and guides us into the truth of Jesus. So you have to ask yourself, is the Spirit of God leading me into the truth or is something else guiding me with a different standard of truth? Am I following a different idea of truth? And of course, I think Scripture can inform these different categories of truth in our life. Uh, scientific truth, moral truth, spiritual truth, uh, I don't know, societal truth, whatever it may be, relational truth. The Scriptures can inform these different areas of truth in our life while some of these other areas are being informed more by culture or by like TikTok or my friends or what I've experienced. So, so we have to learn to recognize where in my life, what areas of my life I'm not allowing the truth to guide me. So you have to ask yourself, is the, is the truth guiding my decisions about finances? Is the word of God guiding my decisions about relationships? Is, is, is Jesus guiding my decisions about who I end up with and who I hang out with and what I choose to do with my life. The Spirit of God, using the truth, He'll lead us. He guides us. So guess what? You and I, as independent as you think you are, as autonomous as you want to be, we depend on someone to guide us. We do. We heavily depend on someone to guide and lead us into the truth. So... Are you allowing the Spirit of God to lead you by the truth of God's Word? And where in your life do you know, I'm not allowing the truth of God to lead this kind of area of my life. Maybe you're scared. Maybe you're afraid of what might happen and you know the risk that's involved. Maybe you know what you need to give up. Maybe you've tried it and it didn't feel good the first time and you're like, I don't like feeling uncomfortable. Whatever it is, I'm encouraging you. If you want to experience the fullest life, you need to be as close to the one who is truth as possible, which means you have to let the word of God guide your way of life in every single area, relationally, financially, occupationally, you know, church life, society, every, every area, your media, what you choose to watch and listen to, what you choose to give attention to, what Netflix series you choose to binge. Binge watch, you know, you have to really let the word of God guide every decision. Because the truth is the truth. And the truth is not uh, compromisable. We can't compromise truth. But we do have a standard of truth. We do have a standard of truth. And this truth saves. This truth guides. This truth sanctifies. This truth reveals. This truth changes us. This truth guides our way of love. And this truth is Jesus. And he is the word of God. And if you guys did not already know, 
This is Above Reproach Ministry. And you can find everything about this ministry at AboveReproachMinistry.com. Let me pull it up so you guys can see it. Boom, right here. You can find all the free resources we have. Uh, you can donate. You can join our online church. You can get a copy of my book. Uh, we have a bunch of free resources. I would encourage you to go check that out. Um, our online church is popping. We're about to jump in a, a voice call, a time of prayer and fellowship in about 20-ish minutes. Um, we have free Bible study courses, devotionals, Bible study worksheets, um, Bible study workshops. And then if you would like to give to this ministry, because we're crowdfunded, uh, this is how I support my wife and two kids. This is literally what God has called us to. Left California, came here to Florida. Here we are. Um, and God led us to start this. It's beautiful. And um, we're just moving people towards Jesus as best as we can. That's what we're doing. We're trying to help people get as close to Jesus as possible. Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer. We're trying to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you want to get behind that mission and support what we're doing... Where all this content is completely free to everyone around the world, wherever they are. Anyone can access all this stuff um, besides my book because it costs money to publish. Um, but you can give uh, through debit or credit card. You can mail a check to P.O. Box 338, Green Cove Springs. Um, you can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon, and then you can get some church merch. All the church merch we got, all the... All the comes in from that is poured right back into this content and this ministry and all the people who are being impacted and reached through this. So um, I think that's it for today. You can go to aboveapproachministry.com slash donate. That's where you can give and um, join the online church. That's where things are really popping and you'll have a good time. If you want to grow in your faith, I encourage you to come and join. All right. I think that is it for today, y'all. Um, Wednesday, we'll be back. Jesus is episode number seven. And we'll talk about how Jesus is salvation. Salvation. All right. I'll see you guys then. Come join us in the Discord chat. Um, the app is called Discord. We're not sewing Discord. We don't want to do that. That's bad. Uh, but come join us. All right. I'll see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus. And I love you all.